0: It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The word of God for the people of God.
1: My name is Carter Crenshaw, and I am a pastor here at West End, and I'm just delighted to be here with you guys. Um, anybody here drive an old car? You drive old cars? Uh, oldest relative. So uh, how about five years old? Five years old? Oh, older. Okay, good, good. Your spirituality is directly proportional to the age of your car. <laughs> I'm just kidding. One of the reasons I don't like older cars, you guys, is the dashboard warning lights. They drive me absolutely crazy. And so my car is old enough now where it looks like a Christmas tree. <laughs> no kidding. But, you know, the truth of the matter is the dashboard warning light's not the problem, it's what it's connected to this is the problem. So the issue is always under the hood in the engine, not the dashboard light itself. Well, what you see in this passage is a dashboard light. And the dashboard light is the anxiety of this young rich man when he comes to the Lord Jesus, comes running to Jesus with a problem. And he's very, very anxious about it. And what you'll see with this passage is you'll see him come with a problem. You'll see Jesus diagnose the problem and offer the solution. And then ultimately talk about the reward as a result of the solution. So it really unfolds really, really well. So let's jump into it. Look at verse 17 as it starts out. So this man is concerned about his future like everybody I know. Because anxiety, just it's all about the future. He's particularly asking about eternal life. And for as first century Jew, here's what's going on. So in the present age, he's experiencing Roman occupation and oppression and economic stress and religious hypocrisy. So he's really, he really sees a life around him that's not well. Then when he asks about eternal life, what he's really asking about is the age to come. And what he's asking about is, is there going to be justice? Is there going to be freedom? Is there going to be true economic equality and prosperity? And ultimately, will there be shalom or peace? And that's why he's running to Jesus, because he sees nothing around him that would resemble that desired future. And so he runs up to Jesus and he falls at his feet. Now, when you think about anxiety, we can have anxiety over just about every, over just about anything. I mean, it's a common condition for us all, and we... All can be just like this man because anxiety will cause you to run towards something. Eventually, you will run for something to find some sort of relief from your anxiety. It might be something to distract you. It might be something to numb you. It might be something that's the latest cure, that's the cure for your anxiety. But whatever you run and chase, you're seeking relief from that anxiety. I think of, for example, I'm going to travel to Israel in May. And I'm already anxious, ladies, about this 12 hour trip from New York to Tel Aviv on the airplane in a thin tube with hundreds of people and not enough to drink. So I've decided I'm going to take Dramamine because Dramamine will cure you. Help me if I'm doing wrong. Please see me after the service those of you who are medical, because I thought Dramamine would put me to sleep, essentially. But it's the anxiety of it, and I don't, what am I worried about? The reason we worry, or the reason we have anxiety, is we know inherently we can't control the future that worries us. So let me give you some stats on anxiety. 40 million American adults, roughly 18% of the population, struggle with literally an anxiety disorder according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Here are the things we're anxious about. Safety, health, finances. Those are uh, for 68% of us. And then how, how about this one? 67% of us worry about paying our bills or some sort of expenses. How about this one? Politics is roughly, uh, causes anxiety for 56% of us. I would bet it's going to be 95% by the, final, by the time we finish this election cycle. And then you've got, uh, you've got relational, let's see, what is 48% is interpersonal relationships. That seems way too low for me. I'll never forget you guys about 20 years ago, I went to a doctor to have physical, and he gave me this physical, and he said, we need to take an x-ray after he did the physical. And I said, okay. So we took the x-ray, and I sat out in the waiting room, and he came back out in the waiting room, and said, well, we need to take another x-ray. And I'm like, oh, well, this is really great. And then uh, we took another x-ray, and then he pulled me in his office, and he said, you need to go see a cardiologist. And I'm like, see a cardiologist? Yes, and the the earliest appointment we can get you in is 10 days from now. Well, you can imagine, uh, you know, I went on spring break for those 10 days. It was absolutely nuts. The things we can get anxious about, because we really can't, control things and that's exactly what's going on here because the insanity of anxiety is this we try to control a future that we can't we can't control the outcome all we can do really is mitigate risk but we can't predict the future and therefore we can't control it and so we get anxious about it and that's exactly what's happening with this man and so I want to ask you as we begin this this uh, time together what are you anxious about now, there are some things, maybe you've walked in and you've just had a, a certain diagnosis of an extreme medical condition. And so you're anxious about the outcome. That's certainly, certainly understandable. Maybe you've got some relational anxieties or some economic anxieties. But all of us are carrying worries. Corey Tinboom said this about worry worry is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength, carrying two days at once. It's moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. So anxiety really is a a challenge simply because there's nothing we can really do about it. And what you have with this man, you've got a man who's really looking for hope. And so he comes to Jesus like so many other people that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark. He comes running to Jesus and he falls at his feet out of desperation because I would, I, I, prolonged anxiety will ultimately cause you to be desperate. He's anxious about his future and he feels like that Jesus may have something to say about his future. So you can think about what this man is, is really thinking about. He's saying, do I have hope for the future? Is this as good as it gets? And is this all there is? is, this all there is? And I think, you guys, when we think about the future, I mean, we all want hope. And we all are looking for a future that we can really really, uh, hope for and and know that it's better than what we have now. And the reason all humanity looks forward to uh, or looks to the future hoping to find hope is because, as the Bible says, the Creator has set eternity in the human heart. In other words, we were designed... We were designed for fullness and satisfaction. And until we have it, we'll always be looking for it. Here's another way to say it. The Bible says we were created with a deep desire to live forever. And we were desired to live in a forever that's perfect with the way things were meant to be. Now, if you think about it for just a minute, we've actually Distorted in the present, we've distorted our design, and we've marred our environment, and so we live in a perpetual discord. I mean, just look at the news, and can the news make you anxious? I mean, every time I turn on, I, you know, I look at CNN and I look at Fox News when I'm working out because I like I like the balance. Every time I t- turn on Fox News, um, they you know they have this alert sort of. Uh, Thing that comes on, and it's all, all designed, at least for me, it just jars me, and it, and, it, and it creates just a, oh my gosh, and that's because the environment that we live in really is in disharmony, there's something wrong, and since, so all of us struggle with some form of anxiety at some time or another, and that's exactly what's happening with this man. Now, here's the key, the anxiety is the dashboard light. It's just the presenting symptom. And as you see this passage unfold, you'll see that Jesus really does diagnose what the man is anxious about and then offers a solution that really is incredible. So look with me at verses 18 through 27. So the man runs up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when he says, Good teacher, he is saying to Jesus, I believe you're good. And obviously, he's heard about Jesus, and he's, seen, he's possibly seen some of the things Jesus has done. But then Jesus asks him a question. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And what's Jesus doing? Well, he is showing the man that the man actually has a very shallow definition of goodness. He's got a very shallow definition of what is good. Why do you call me good? You don't really know me. And the reason he points that out to the man is we all struggle with a shallow understanding of what's really, really good. You know, you guys, when I was coming up in Alabama, I mean, we were all good people. (laughs) And then we got older, and all the things that were hidden under the surface began to really blossom. And it was about 20 or 25 that I realized I was not the good person that I thought I was. And I began to listen carefully, and apparently other people didn't think I was that good a person either. (laughs) And it's because we have a shallow definition of goodness. And Jesus is simply here starting with the man to say, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Because he wants to show the man that actually we don't have a basic goodness. We've got a basic problem. There was a paper written in Psychology Today about five years ago. And listen to what it said, and I want to quote it. It says, The notion of basic goodness is central to some psychological teaching on the concept of self. There's some psychological teaching that tends to issue from a place of damage or illness. But much of psychology would have a start with a place of wholeness and perfection. It goes on to say that we need to spend time rediscovering our basic goodness. is that really true? Because the worst thing that could happen to us is to believe something about us that's actually not true where we actually lie to ourselves. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's really bringing this man to a deep self-awareness. He's helping him understand himself. And one of the truths about Christianity, if you're exploring it, is you need to know that Christianity sees you a particular way and then begins to offer you a particular solution. And so self-awareness is essential. So he takes time, Jesus here, takes time to help the man He the man understand himself. And here's how he does it. He pulls out the law of God. And he begins to quote the law of God and says, you know, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. And he talks about these uh, laws of God that really are talking about ways that we relate to people. And in summary, we're called to love people. And so Jesus begins to quote the law of God. And the man says, I have kept all these since I was a boy. Now, why did the man, why did Jesus quote the law of God to him? Well, you guys, when I, we, when I was much younger and my kids were much younger, we would take them out to the park and we would dress them. They would get dressed in very dark clothing and we would play a game called Spotlight. Have you ever played the game Spotlight? Is when you get a massive mag light and everybody runs and hides, and they, they try to come and, and tag you before you actually spot them with the flashlight beam. If you spot them with the flashlight beam, of course they're out. Well, the flashlight beam is the law of God. The law of God is a beam of light into the darkness to point out what is true about the dark. And so when Jesus quotes the law of God, what he's doing is is he's exposing the human heart. Now, here's the irony of it. This man says, I've kept all these since I was a boy. Now, we'll go into that in just a few minutes. But when he says, since I was a boy, he's referring to an age of accountability because every Jewish boy at the age of 12 was held accountable at that age for the law of God, keeping the law of God. And so he says, I'm good, I'm good. And then here's what happens next. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, you guys, that word look has a great definition. Y'all, have you ever met anybody that's got dark eyes and you can't see their pupils? And you're looking at them and they're looking at you and you're like, oh my gosh, they can see Right through me. You feel like you're just naked right in front of them. Have you ever felt that before? They can see right through you. That's what this word means. It's a a gaze that says, I know you. And I can see all the way to your heart. And one of the truths about Jesus is he can see your heart this morning. And he looks on you with love. And if you don't remember anything else in this sermon, remember that. He can see you for who you are and as a result loves you deeply because that's what you need most. And that's what happens with this man. He looks at him and he loves him deeply. And in fact, so deeply that he refuses to let this man... Stay in the darkness. And so what does he do? He puts his finger on the one thing that's most precious to the man. Now, do we have any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Any fans? Ready for the quote? Listen carefully. This is at the very end of the return of the king. Frodo gave a cry and there was fallen upon his knees at the chasm's edge. But Gollum, dancing like a mad thing, held aloft the ring, a finger still thrust through its circle. Precious, 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 Gollum cried. My precious, oh, my precious. And with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he stepped too far, toppled, wavered for a moment on the brink, and then fell with a shriek out of the depths, came his last whale, precious. And he was gone. That's when he fell into the lake of fire. And he had his precious. The precious was the ring. And what's so interesting is this. That which he most wanted to possess, the ring that he'd been seeking all his life. He lost the ring and he'd been seeking it all his life. That which he want, wanted to possess, Possess ultimately came back and possessed him and destroyed him. And that's why Jesus puts his finger on the one thing that's holding this man back. And so I want to ask you this morning as we're thinking through this together. Is there something in your life that you're holding on to? that you believe will ultimately bring, your life, bring you life and you can't let go of it? What, what would that be? Would it be a, your reputation? What would, what would it be for you to lose it? And if you lost your job, if you lost your wealth, if you lost something, what would, what would destroy you if you lost it? What Jesus is doing with this man is he's putting his finger on the one thing the man lacks. And notice what he says. He says, one thing you lack, sell everything, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Now, pastors love to preach this passage. Let me, they like to preach it about the second week in December when they're behind budget at church. Because obviously the Lord is calling you to let go of all your wealth and go to Africa and let go of your wealth and leave it at the church door. That's not, that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is this, and I laugh. We will talk about wealth in just a few minutes. But the one th- the, the, what he's saying is whatever you're hanging on to that you're looking to for life, it won't give it to you. You think you possess it, but it actually possesses you. And if it possesses you, it will destroy you. It will not give you what you think you want from it or can get from it. So Jesus says, He says to the man, It's time. You need to sell everything and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Now, I want you to see something. This is not about a work salvation where the man saves himself by actually letting go of his wealth. Absolutely not. It's actually a man who lets go of something that he thinks will fully and finally save him and finds the one who will actually do the saving, and that's the Lord Jesus. And so what he says is to let go of the idol and find real life. To let go of the idol is called, the Bible calls it, repentance. To turn from something that you look to for life and to turn to the Lord who's the author and the giver of life. So when you turn, it's called repentance. And so what he says to the man is to let go of your wealth, to sell everything. That's the way you let go of your wealth, to turn from your wealth and turn and follow me. And when he says, come and follow me, it's an invitation to surrender and intimacy. Because he knows, Jesus knows that this man's wealth can't save him. And what Jesus does is to invite the man into a relationship with him because Jesus can save him and will. And so he invites him. And so the invitation for every person in this room, if you've not let go of things you're looking to for life, this morning would be the time to let go and turn to the Lord Jesus and begin to follow him, to surrender to him, because he is the giver of life, and he is who you are looking for. I had a friend who years ago, was dating this young lady, and he was absolutely in love with her. Now, you got to understand this about my friend. He'd been in love with a number of young ladies before, and so, you know, I learned to take him with a grain of salt, but he really, really convinced me, and he was in love with this girl, and he kept saying to me, I've got to go home this afternoon, and his home was 30 miles away over in Fairview, and I'm like, Curtis, why do you have to go home? Why do you have to go to Fairview? And he said, well, I'm taking Laura to my my place tonight. I need to go home. And I'm like, Curtis, I'm sure it's totally fine. Just take her out there tonight. He says, no, I have to go home this afternoon because I've got to take down all the pictures of my former girlfriends before I bring Laura over. That's what's called the expulsive power of a new affection. And in fact, an old, uh, an old, uh, an old uh, 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 Puritan preacher talked about the fact that in order to let go of an old affection, I must find a new one. And that's what Jesus is inviting this man to do when he says, sell everything and let go and come, follow me. Because until you see Jesus is actually more beautiful than the precious that you hold, You'll never be able to let go. Now, the man left, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, here's what's something important to see. The reason that he walked away sad is not because he had wealth, but because wealth had him. It wasn't the wealth itself that was the problem. It was the love of wealth that eclipsed his love for the Lord Jesus. And that's why he walked away sad. Now, the disciples were watching all this. And look at verses 23 through 25. And here's what he said to them. He said, it's hard for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's stop for a minute. I think it's safe to say that most everybody in this room is wealthy. It's all relative. I went to Ambo, Ethiopia probably 15 years ago. And we were all walking along a street, and I saw where this man lived, and it was truly about 25 square feet, and his roof was one of those blue tarps that you can buy at Walmart. So when you think about situations like that, we all are wealthy. But here's what's key when you think about wealth. Why is it so dangerous? It is dangerous. Well, it's so dangerous because Wealth can fund so many of our other idols. In other words, if I have money, I can buy beauty. If I have money, I can buy power. If I have money, I can buy reputation. And so wealth can really fund so many of our other idols. And I believe that's why Jesus talks about wealth as being so dangerous. Now, by this time, the disciples are absolutely shocked. Look at 26 and 27. Because they believed that the reception, the fact that I I have wealth, was actually a sign from God that he was really blessing me. And wealth can be a great blessing. But here's the problem with that. You can move into the idea that... God's blessings are always wealth, and that is not true. So they were really shocked because they thought this rich man was being blessed by God. And if wealthy people couldn't be saved, then who could? And then Jesus makes this incredibly critical point. He says this, he says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And what's he saying? He's simply saying this, is no matter what you lay your hand to, no matter what you seek to possess to save you, it will never give you what you ultimately want. Ultimately, only Jesus Christ can save. And the only way we can have Christ is if we let go of that which we're trying to save ourselves with. We've got to let go of wealth. We've got to let go of reputation. We've got to let go of power. He wants us to turn to him. So those things that we possess don't possess us and destroy us. Remember the ring. Gollum had it, and it destroyed him. That's what an idol does to you. You think you possess it, and it actually takes your life. And that's why Jesus says, let go of it. And have me for real life. That's exactly what he's saying to this man. Now, really, in order to let go of that, we've got to find Jesus as more valuable than that which we let go of. We've got to fully and finally understand that we can't save ourselves, that ultimately only God can save us. Only God can save us from our idols. Now, look at verses 28 through 31. Jesus offers an incredible reward as we seek him. He says this, first the disciples say, well, Jesus, we've left everything. Now, there's a bit of sassiness in that, if you will. And so uh, Peter's saying, we've left everything. And here's Jesus's response. He says, you will receive a hundred times home, family, possessions in this age and the age to come. And yet there will be persecution. And so what he's simply saying, Jesus, when he says that is this. He's saying, when you come to faith in Christ, there are tremendous blessings that you do receive. And in fact, when you come to faith in Christ and you follow him, you'll begin to enjoy the material blessings that you have in ways that you've never been able to enjoy them before because now those things that you have actually become resources to bless other people with. You'll begin to enjoy relationships when you come to faith in Christ. You'll begin to enjoy relationships with other people in ways that you've never enjoyed relationship with others before. Why is that so? Well, let me tell you this. When you come to faith in Christ, you begin to see people in a whole new way. And instead of, instead of looking at people for what they can do for you, but you begin to look at people for what you can do for them. And the most healthy relationships, men and women, the most healthy marriage you'll ever have is not a marriage that you primarily move into for what you can get out of it, but a marriage that you move into for what you can sacrifice for the benefit of the other person. That's the most healthy marriage, what you can invest in the other person, not withdraw from them. And through faith in Christ, he can give you the power to relate like that When you come to faith in Christ, your family expands. You guys, I've got two brothers and two sisters. One brother's passed away. None know the Lord Jesus. We have great fellowship, really great friends with my oldest brother. But I tell you, my real family is here. You've gathered here this morning. We're feasting together on the word of God. This is the family that will last forever. This is the family that will enjoy the feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb forever. Brothers and sisters, too numerous to count. And if it's really true that faith in Christ means that we're all in God's family through him, what a family we have. You know, I don't know if you guys feel like this, but I love big Thanksgiving celebrations. William Sonoma, all that. I just love those kinds of Thanksgivings. And big, big, you know, inviting lots of people over. You guys, can you imagine our Thanksgiving with three or four hundred like this every day for all eternity? That's what the Lord Jesus promises. And blessings in this life, the greatest joys that you'll ever find with the blessings that we have in this life is to use those blessings to bless other people. And in fact, don't count your blessings here. Invest your blessings. That's the greatest part about blessings is what they can used for. And so the rich man put his faith in something that would never last. And because it wouldn't last, it sure wouldn't save him. But Jesus ends this interaction with his disciples. And he says this, he says, the first will be last and the last will be first. And here's all he's saying with that. He's simply saying this, if you seek to be first in this life... This life will be all you have. But there is one who comes, the Lord Jesus. When he came, went to the back of the line to actually put us first. In his life and his death and his resurrection, he put us first. And so when we come to him in faith, we join him at the back of the line to put other people first. And that's the great joy of this life, not going first, but putting other people first. And at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, there will be no line. In fact, We'll all be on the front row.